Good morning. My name is Brandon, and I have been with you all a few times, two times before this, I think, over this past year or so. Uh, It's great to be back with you all. I work for a ministry called Third Mill. I'd love to tell you about that a different time, a different day. Uh, It's a joy to be back with you all. Um, In your current circumstances, I'm saddened for what you all are going through. I'm saddened for the Harris family. Uh, But challenging circumstances don't mean this is the end for your story. Doesn't mean it's the end for the Harris family story as well. So I'm really curious to see what God does next in you all and, and through you all. I probably mentioned it, the, I think the first time I, I came here, I almost prepared a sermon on the book of Jonah, but I think you all just had a sermon the week before that on Jonah, and so, or VBS was coming on, somehow there was a connection to Jonah. It is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It always has been, it's always captivated my heart for some kind of reason, and, and when you read the children's version of, of the story, the book of Jonah, it can lead you to think that, that Jonah, once God gives him a second chance you know, that he becomes this great hero of this pagan city. He preaches to them. God uses his preaching, his mighty, eloquent words. They, they capture the hearts of these pagans, these worldly Ninevites, and we can e- easily minimize and misunderstand this entire story as, as this, this reason for God just gives us second chances. And God does love to give second chances, but that's not the heart of the whole book of Jonah. God loves to show grace. He loves to show mercy. And you know what? Jonah really gets it right. But when you read chapter 4, that's not how the book ends. Jonah doesn't get it right there at the end. So before reading chapter 4, I want to recap chapters 1 through 3 really quick. Jonah's called to go to this pagan city, Nineveh, preach. And what does he do? He literally goes the exact opposite way. He says, God says, go over here. He goes way over here. God says, I'm going to go up to this city. You're going to go way down to below the sea. By the end, I'm done with you. He's on the ocean. The storm comes up. God orchestrates this storm. The sailors eventually are led to throw Jonah overboard because of his confession. The storm stops and the pagan sailors put their faith in the Lord. It's a slight little foreshadowing of what's coming. Jonah's in the belly of this giant fish sea creature, Leviathan something. We don't know what exactly it is. At least I'm not willing to say what it was. He prays. Jonah prays in the the belly of this creature. The fish vomits Jonah out on dry land. God tells him to do the very same thing that he told him in the first three verses of the entire book. Go to Nineveh, preach. This time Jonah goes and he preaches and something miraculous happens. Something miraculous happens. The evil Ninevites repent. And they turn from their wicked ways, and they turn to the Lord. So that's the first three chapters. The Bible tells us there is a party in heaven when one person repents and turns back to the Lord. What do you think the party was like when the entire city, over 120,000 people, put their faith in God? And that's where we pick up reading in Jonah. So I'm going to read chapter 4. I'm actually going to read the first verse, uh, sorry, the last verse in Jonah 3, and then read chapter 4. So starting in verse 10 in chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said this, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. Father, you promised that your word and your truth and your spirit never come back void. So, Father, would you go to work as you always do through your word, through your truth, and through your spirit this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, at first read, we don't really understand why Jonah responds the way he does. I believe it's because Jonah has forgotten who God is and his compassionate heart that is overflowing for his people, for his children, for his creation that's made in his likeness. I also believe that we too often forget, or maybe we have forgotten God's compassionate heart for his children, for us, those who have been made in his image. And by doing this, when we forget God's compassionate heart, we lose the heart of the gospel. We lose touch with who God is. The gospel becomes this lukewarm version of itself, or becomes something different entirely. We've let individualism, we've let fear determine how we're going to live our lives rather than the gospel. Christians in the West, too often we have majored on the minors. We have made God and his kingdom something else, something worldly, something man-made, not heavenly. You know, we live in a culture that says, if you want to believe in a God, good, believe in a a God of love, a God who just accepts you and accepts everyone no matter what, no matter how they they live, what they do, what they believe, instead of a God who accepts us only through the work of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you grew up in a church where, where God is depicted, he's always angry. He's always got this scowl or this, this angry grin on his face. Maybe believe in a God who, who wants you to be a really good person rather than a disciple who, who accepts us only because of Jesus. You see, if God is the God of our culture, a God of love who accepts anyone and everyone, why would anyone be drawn to that? There's no power, there's no pull, there's no reason to be in awe of who God is if that's who he is. If God is angry and just only, if God is strict and harsh, a God with perfection has his standard, then why would anyone be drawn to that? If this is your box of who God is, then you're going to white knuckle, you're just going to try as hard as you can to push through, to attempt as many times over and over again to follow God, but you're going to be left with three possible outcomes. 
You're going to live in shame and guilt, knowing that you're not perfect. You're going to get tired of this impossible standard that you've created for yourself, and you're going to run away completely. Or, maybe the most dangerous one, I'm not sure, you will fall into the lie and the illusion of Satan that there is something about you, something that makes you special, something that makes you believe that you are good enough for God to make you his own. The third option is, is what I believe has happened with Jonah. He believed that he was good enough. He believed that he was worthy. That meant that the Ninevites, the pagan sailors earlier, they're not good enough. They're not worthy for God's heart. Jonah has let these small, subtle whispers take up some big parts of his heart. He's either never known the heart of the gospel or he's become very blind to the heart of the gospel. And ultimately, he's become unaware of who God is. My prayer and my hope for us this morning is that we will find, and maybe for the first time, God's heart for you. When you see God's heart for you, what he has done to reconcile us back to him, then you're forever changed. There's no other response to it. My hope is that you'll be so in awe, so amazed at how God voluntarily chooses to love you, to attach himself to us, to justify us, to adopt us, to make us his own. That this will stir in us, stir in your heart to do the same towards others. Do you have a heart for others? Do you desire your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members to know and experience the same heart of God that you may have already experienced? Do you desire for people across our globe to hear and believe? If you said yes to these, these groups of people in any way, then there's at least this curiosity or maybe some kind of fire that started in your heart. But here's where it gets tough. How is your heart for your enemies? How is your heart for those with different political opinions and ideologies? Here's where it gets hard for me personally. People that have hurt you and wronged you in various ways in your life. How is your heart towards those who are persecuting Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ in China or Ukraine or India? Where do we draw that line on who deserves God's love and mercy and who doesn't? Who are the people who don't deserve it? As those questions start to swirl in your heart, let's start by looking at Jonah's heart. For Jonah, we quickly see that it was the Ninevites who didn't deserve God's grace. And now, again, when you read the book of Jonah, your heart, gonna, your heart is going to lean towards doing one of two things. Your heart may tell you that Jonah, again, that he's the hero. He saved the Ninevites. He did it. He's this amazing man. He got his act together, and he, he pushed forward, and he was obedient to the word of the Lord if you just focus on the first three chapters. That's an easy way for our heart to get pulled as we read this story. But if you read the fourth chapter, as we just did, then it's also easy for us to go the other extreme, that Jonah is this wicked man who clearly is not in tune with God's heart. Your heart may even do what my heart has done at times as I've read this story in this, these four chapters over and over in my life. I have made Jonah this villain who can't be saved. You know, I do believe it's safe to say that Jonah is the one at the wrong at the end of the book, but just like the pagan sailors, just like the Ninevites, Jonah is not irredeemable and hopelessly lost. So let me flush that out just a little bit why Jonah doesn't have a heart for Nineveh. First, it, it was shocking for Jonah because Hebrew prophets, they don't leave Israel. 
They don't leave the safety of the temple and go to some pagan nation. All the prophets before Jonah were never sent to other nations in order to preach. Jonah's the first one that God's ever asked to do this. This is a very unknown territory for a prophet. Second, uh, did, how old, what is the youngest age of kids in here? I see some five, six, seven-year-olds-ish. Two-year-old, all right. So I'm going to modify this next paragraph. The Ninevites were probably the most wicked people of their time. Just think of the worst things that a person could do to another people group if they beat them in a war, and the Ninevites would be doing it. And they did, they did not spare any exceptions for children, for women. It did not matter who you were. You are going to be treated horribly. The few who survived were fated to endure slavery of the worst sorts. This is who the Ninevites were. Think of the most evil people in the world. If you want to know more details, I'll tell you later, but we'll keep it safe for the kids here. So as you think about the fact that Jonah's being sent to do something that God has never asked anyone to do, and how evil and wicked these Ninevites were, were to Jonah's people, can you at least sympathize with Jonah a little bit and why he responds the way he does? You know, it would be like God calling you to go to India right now, where it's probably one of the most hardest places to be a Christian, and preach, to the wicked, preach against the wickedness in there. It would be like God calling a Jewish rabbi to go into Germany in the middle of World War II. It would be like God calling a black man or woman to go into the KKK's headquarters and preach to them about their evil and call them to repent. Think about how frightening that scenario would be. And the internal push to not obey God is twofold for Jonah. Not only is Nineveh a life-threatening place that is notorious for torturing its enemies, does a city like Jonah, do a people like the Ninevites, do they even deserve God's mercy and grace? So Jonah did exactly what many of us would have done. He refused God. He did the exact opposite of what God wanted him to do. Again, he went east. God said, go east to Nineveh. He went west. God said, go up. He went down. He did everything the opposite. God said, go to the biggest city of the day. Jonah fled to the farthest corner of the earth that was known to man at the time. So let's fast forward to the end of chapter 3, when the Ninevites have repented of their evil ways and turned towards God. How does Jonah respond? You know, it's not that Jonah stubbed his toe and he's unhappy or he's sad. Jonah viewed what God had done as pure evil. Jonah literally hated what God had done. As one commentary said, as God's anger and judgment were averted in chapter 3, Jonah's anger and judgment were ignited. Why was his response so negative? Again, think about it this way. You're a missionary. You're called to go to a non-Christian place. Nobody has known or heard about Jesus or God. And within three days, the entire city is converted. The entire city repents and puts their faith in God. You literally just got to experience and be a primary part of the miracle God, God giving life to dry bones. God making dead hearts beat. Again, the Bible says there is a party in heaven when one person repents and turns to God. What do you think the celebration was like when an entire city of over 120,000 people gives their life to God? What should Jonah's response have been? He should have been amazed. The God of the universe of heaven and earth reached down and transformed an entire pagan, wicked city, and I got to be front row seats in this. 
You know, I think of the three, four years ago now, there was a shooting at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, where a man went in and he shot nine, 11 people. I forget, I think five or six of them were killed in the shooting. And a few weeks later, some of the family members of the people who were murdered in that shooting came out and publicly forgave the shooter as he's in prison. This should have been something in the lines of the response of a prophet of God. So what's Jonah's problem? There's got to be something more than what is on the surface here. What's going on in Jonah's heart that causes him to be so unhappy and upset at God? He's missed all of joy of being involved in God's wonderful work because of his self-centeredness and his misunderstanding of God's grace, his compassion, his steadfast love and mercy. You see, to be a Christian, you have to come face to face with your sin and your wickedness. And when you see your evil ways, you know that there's nothing you can do to be made right with God. So you need God to extend his mercy, his compassion, his grace to you in order to be saved. For there's no other way. But for Jonah, of course, he needed God's mercy. He's a prophet. He knows this. Surely he wasn't on the same level as these other people. Surely he didn't need God as much as these pagans. You know, I had a classmate in middle school and in high school named Stuart. I didn't like Stuart. Stuart was a jerk. He was a playboy. He was a bully. I could go into details. That's not the point. Um, but I grew up in church. I knew, I knew that I was good. That I was a good kid. I was a good teenager. So I go again in more detail on my goodness, but that's not the point of the story either. But when Stuart and I were seniors in high school, Stuart became a Christian and started following Christ. He started coming to my youth group and my church, and he put his faith in Jesus. How do you think I responded? Just like Jonah. I didn't believe it to be true. I didn't want it to be true. It didn't matter what I believed. I did not want it to be true. Why was such a, my opinion, my words, scumbag, why should he, who has already done so much at such a young age, deserve God's grace? That was my mindset. That was my heart set. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve God's grace. He didn't deserve God's compassion. He didn't deserve God's steadfast love. And in those sentences, did you hear the word that was repeated over and over again? Deserve. You know, along with Jonah, I believe that there are people like the Ninevites, there are people like Stuart who don't deserve God's grace, but that I do. There's something about me that I deserve God's grace. I sinfully and self-righteously believed that I was better than him. I'm sinfully, I sinfully believe that I had some amount of goodness. I have some amount of moral high ground, something about me that caused God to look down upon me and smile. Jonathan Haidt, a, a social psychologist who isn't a Christian, by the way, he concludes from his research that self-righteousness is the normal human condition. Non-Christian coming to this conclusion. And that fits in with what the Bible says about the human desire to justify oneself through one's performance and effort, and therefore to boast in one's righteousness. You see, Jonah's self-righteousness had been diminished somewhat, but not destroyed. He cried, salvation belongs to the Lord at the end of his prayer at the end of chapter 2. But then at the end here, I'm not as bad as those pagan Ninevites. That's why he responds the way he does in chapter 4. 
So for you, who are the people that you think you're better than? Who are the people that you look down upon? Who are the ones who you think are out of reach for God's steadfast love? Now, as long as we can answer these questions with a people group or individuals, then we're going to have this massive stumbling block in understanding God's grace. You see, we think far too little of our sinfulness and how completely broken we are apart from Christ. The Ninevites, Jonah, me, you, all of us, everyone is completely and wholly lost because of our sinfulness. There's not a single person in all of history that is little more or little less sinful than everyone else. We are all wicked and evil and sinful, and we all have the same level of brokenness that we bring to the table before God. Doesn't matter how good you are, the bad things that you haven't done, we're all just wicked and evil apart from Christ. This is our nature. You see, Jonah didn't believe this in his heart by the end of the book, but Lord willing, he started to get it afterwards. But I, I still struggle to believe this in my heart. It's too easy to point the finger at others and try to make myself feel better about myself. So where does your heart stand in this? So praise God that Jonah's heart is not a reflection of his heart. So let's just take a closer look at God's heart in the book of Jonah. And as we begin to focus on this, please know that this is what the book of Jonah, this is what the whole story of us learning about Jonah is all about in the Bible. It's about capturing and learning who God is and how his heart works for us. What made God's heart go out to the Ninevites? What made God's heart go out to the pagan sailors? What made God's heart continue time and time again, just in those four chapters, continue to go after a stubborn, self-righteous prophet? I want to unpack God's heart just in three ways. This could be, this is many books written on God's heart, but we're just going to look at God's heart being generous, patient, and voluntary. First, God's heart is generous. God describes the Ninevites as those who don't know their right hand from their left at the end of the book. It's a figure of speech that means they're spiritually blind. They have lost their way. They don't have the first clue as what's wrong with them or how to get out of the pit that they are in. Now, God's threat to destroy Nineveh shows that his blindness and his ignorance is no, their blindness and ignorance is no excuse for their sinfulness, but it shows a, a generous sympathy and understanding towards them. When we see people who have brought trouble on their lives, like a homeless man or someone in prison, we quickly assume that it's something that they're getting that they deserve. You know, maybe they just need to get a job. If they could just get a job, they would be fine. They probably shouldn't have robbed that store. Something like this might be what flows through our brains or our hearts or maybe even comes out of our mouths. Tim Keller said it this way, that the reason we say these things, the reason we try to justify what they are getting, what they deserve, is because we're trying to detach ourselves from these people. We're trying to remove our heart from being connected to these people. We distance ourselves partly out of pride because we don't want, partly out of pride because we want to think that we're better than them, but also because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. Because if we really thought about why these individuals are in the circumstances they're in, if we really thought about their story, their life experiences, their circumstances, like Stuart, who have, have made him the way he was, then maybe we would realize that he has a sad story or that his experience in life thus far, have led him to be who he is. 
John Calvin says Jonah's greatest sin is that he was very inhuman in his attitude toward Nineveh. God's generous compassion went out to Nineveh, but it also went out to Jonah. Jonah's usual book used to teach that God gives second chances, but how many chances in the book alone did God give Jonah? There are about a, a handful of times the generous compassion of God goes out to Jonah's attempt in his attempt to reveal Jonah his own heart of self-righteousness and his stubbornness. How much of a generous effort does God give to Jonah in this story? Second, God's compassion, God's heart is patient. God tries so many times in so many different ways to poke and prod at Jonah. He saves his life when he could have drowned. He tells Jonah, I'll be the author of what you're going to preach. Don't even worry about it. I'll take care of it. He asks Jonah some very thought-provoking questions after Nineveh is saved. God knows that we're going to struggle even after we're saved. He doesn't require perfection. What he requires is a complete and full reliance on him and his grace to carry us through. God continues to, to walk with us as we limp along towards the finish line. He's not asking us to break any world records. He's just asking that we hold his hand, that we lean on him as he leads us to the end. How patient was God with Jonah? How patient has God been with you in your life so far? Third, God's compassion, God's heart is voluntary. God voluntarily attached his heart to the people of Nineveh. God weeps over the evil and lostness of Nineveh. When you put your heart out there and give it to someone, not specifically romantically, but you're happy when they're happy. You're sad when they're sad. You have voluntarily put your heart on the line, giving your heart to someone or something. It always makes us vulnerable to life's greatest joys and life's greatest pains. But this is our God, and this is what he does time and time again, over and over again. When most people think about God flooding the earth in Genesis 6, 6 through 9, that whole narrative with Noah, they think, man, God is very angry. He's got to be this angry God due to what he's doing. Yes, God was angry due to man's sin, but think about this. What if I were to say that that was not God's primary emotion when he flooded the earth? In Genesis 6, 6, we read that when God looked down on the evil of the earth, his heart was filled with pain, sadness. Not because he was shocked or surprised at the evil in the world, but because his heart has voluntarily attached to his image bearers. And this is what has happened. It was a great joy for God to see Nineveh repent and turn back to him. It was a great pain for God to see his stubborn prophet still not get it. You know, the next part of God's heart is even more jaw-dropping and amazing to me. We need many things. What does God need? Nothing. God needs nothing. He is complete and perfect in himself. He doesn't need us. He already has complete and perfect community in the Trinity. So why and how could God get so attached to us, enemies that have turned our backs to him, that our pain and our sufferings cause him to weep? That your pain and your sufferings, the thing that breaks your heart, breaks his heart. As one commentator puts it, the only answer is that an infinite, omnipotent, self-sufficient, divine being loves only voluntarily. Only voluntarily could this God do this. How could God be so attached to us? How could God say what happens to Nineveh affects me? How could God say what happens to you? It moves me. It grieves me. It's because he has voluntarily attached his heart to you. 
The same is said of God throughout the Bible when Israel, God's chosen people, they choose anything and everything besides God again and again and again. And he always says, I cannot stay away from them forever because I have voluntarily attached my heart to them. They are my people. They are my children. I have made the choice to connect my heart to yours. We see this metaphor in the book of Hosea, if you ever want to look closely at that metaphor. God is the groom who remains faithful to the adulterous bride. God has made a covenant with us, and even though we have broken that covenant on our end time and time again, God will not break it on his end. The perfect, faithful, holy one, permanently attaching himself to broken, adulterous, sinful ones. But the only way God could attach himself to us was if he unattached himself from his only begotten son. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells us that he is the greater Jonah and that he is here. Jonah and Jesus both have very similar events happen to them in the Bible. Both were in a boat that experienced a great storm. Both of them were asleep when the storm starts. The pagan sailors and disciples believe they're going to die. These storms are so bad, they are not going to make it. And in both instances, divine intervention stopped the storm immediately. When the storm stopped, the pagan sailors and disciples had a greater fear than when the storm was going on. They're more scared after the fact. What God controls the seas and the storms is what the sailors said. What is the man, what, who is this man that even the seas and the winds obey him? said the disciples. Jesus, the same one who calmed calmed the seas and the winds with his voice, is the greater Jonah because he stopped the ultimate storm of sin by voluntarily throwing himself under the waves of sin and death. You see, the the storm for Jonah stopped as soon as he went into the water. The moment he splashed, the storm stopped. For Jesus, the storm didn't stop until Jesus drowned in its waters. This was the only way God could attach himself to us again. He threw himself overboard so that we might live. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I cannot urge you enough to respond the same way the sailors did. Repent and believe, just like the Ninevites did. Believe that God is who he says he is. Believe that God is who he says he is in the Bible. Believe the good news of God's compassionate heart that is generous that it's patient and it voluntarily goes out to you. I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of chapter 4, I get a little annoyed. Why does the story end here? What happens to Jonah? Is he going to get it after all this time, after all this poking and prodding, after all this patience from God? Sinclair Ferguson writes, The book forces us to contemplate our own personal destiny. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion. For you are Jonah and I am Jonah. It is as if God shoots an arrow of a question at Jonah, but Jonah disappears and we realize that the arrow is aimed at us. How will you answer that last question in the book of Jonah? I hope the book of Jonah stirs up the affection and compassion God has for you. What God has done for you in Christ, that should have us daily praising and rejoicing in him. And that even after you are his, he isn't done pursuing you. It is his personal mission to remind you of his heart for you and to never give up on you. So it is his personal mission to make you more into his perfect, faithful, holy image bearer. Secondly, pray that God 
would reveal to you the ways that you're blind and ignorant of your self-righteousness and the ways that you think make you look good to God apart from Jesus. Because here's the truth. The areas of pride in our hearts and where we are blocked is where we are blocking the Spirit from going to work in us. We are minimizing, we are shrinking our sin where we think we are good apart from Christ, which means we are minimizing the cross. We are shrinking the cross in our heart. Last one, which means we are minimizing and shrinking the awe and wonder that we should have in Jesus because he has saved a wretched sinner like you and me. When God calls us home, I hope that we can all say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Thirdly, I'm going to end with this. Who is God calling you towards? Now, I'm not asking everyone in here to to go to India or the Middle East, but maybe God is. Seriously, maybe God is calling you to go to a place or a people that is hostile to God or unknown. Christianity means nothing to them. I don't know. I know there's a family here that's committed to Ecuador. But here's the application for us, including myself. Who is one person in my life, whether it's a family member, whether it's a coworker, a neighbor, someone at the gym, someone at the grocery store that you bump into time and time again, God has put on your path of normal life that you can be intentional about. So I would love to ask you all to think and to pray that God would place someone in your life this year, maybe this summer even, for you to share the compassionate heart of God with, to be intentional in your relationship and your interactions with them. Maybe ask them over for a meal. Have an intentional conversation with them when you see them every week at the grocery store, whatever it might be. Who is God calling you towards? Who has God put in your normal path of life that you can intentionally pursue with the compassionate heart of God that he has pursued you with? If you've experienced the heart of God, if you've experienced his love and his compassion, his steadfast love, his patience, how his heart voluntarily goes out to us, then sharing this with people, inviting people into that same heart to know and experience it as you had, that should be a joy for us. To bring joy to us to share his love, just as it was a joy for him to demonstrate his love to us. Let's pray. Father, the things that make you weep versus the things that make us weep are very different. Father, for you, weep when you see your image bearers just so far fallen. Yet we weep when we don't have enough money or the money that we think we deserve. or We don't get the promotion. We don't get the notoriety. We don't get X, Y, or Z that we think we should have. So, Father, forgive us because there is such a difference in what makes your heart weep versus what makes our heart weep. Father, forgive us where we have not seen that you weep over the things that make us weep. Your heart breaks for us when you see your children in pain and in sadness. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept when he looked over Jerusalem. He wept when he saw the pain and the sorrow that sin and death brought into this world. So, Father, we need your heart. We need our heart to be more like yours. We need to have your heart so we can have the right view of ourselves, a right view of others, and a right view of creation. So, Holy Spirit, when you attach yourself to us, as you have for so many of us here, would you come with the power of grace? Would you come with the power of truth, with the power of transformation? We ask now to continue to reveal the work 
and work in us, excuse me, to reveal and work that power in us and through us. Father, would you give us a heart of compassion? The heart that we see you have in the story of Jonah and the story in the story of the whole Bible and what we've seen that you have done for us through Jesus Christ. For you love to attach your heart to ours. So, Father, align our hearts and make our hearts more like yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.